And as we continue the series, The Bridge to Eternal Life, um, I want to read a few verses to you from Acts 20 before we actually open to the book of Romans together. Um, because I have been telling you that um, the, the reasons why I feel compelled to do this six-week series is, um, is really threefold. Um, and that is that because the gospel is of first importance, that's what the scriptures teach us, and that we need to be stirred up to remembrance, um, but also because I want to put in your hands a practical tool that will help you to communicate the gospel clearly to others. <clears throat> but there's also a deep heart burden that I feel as a pastor that I can, uh, is expressed by the Apostle Paul in Acts 20 that I can very much uh, relate to. Um, let me just give you a little bit of the context before I actually read what, what weight uh, Paul felt on his heart. It says in Acts 20, verse 17, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God. <clears throat> Excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry about that. Let me back up to verse 20. Um, the burden of Paul's heart. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The apostle, as, as one who was given the stewardship of the gospel, he felt this burden on his heart and this conviction that he would not shrink from declaring the whole counsel of God. In other words, he would not back away from preaching what the scriptures really teach uh, for fear of being rejected. He had already been through an um, untold number of uh, rejection experiences. And, uh, but yet he said, I am going to declare to you everything that is profitable. That's what I've been doing. And he's, he's saying this to the elders in, in Ephesus because he wants them to sense the same weight on their hearts that uh, there is this gospel stewardship that we have. And so he says, I didn't hold back anything that was profitable. So I, I realize that the truth of the scriptures is hard sometimes for us to, to hear. It's hard for me to hear sometimes. It's hard for you to hear. Um, and yet each of us is going to stand before the Lord someday. Um, and, and we need to be prepared for that day. And so as a result of that, Paul was teaching publicly and from house to house. So both in his public ministry and in his private ministry of the word, he was committed to staying faithful to God's word and to preach this message, this gospel of repentance toward God and faith in Christ. Repentance toward God and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now, I also feel this weight upon me uh, because of what Hebrews 13, 17 says. Uh, that is, that elders are those who are to be keeping watch over the souls of God's people, the souls of the flock. And so uh, I, among the six other elders here at Cornerstone, we know that there's a day coming in which we will stand before the Lord Jesus. We will give an account to him for how we stewarded the gospel, how we handled the word of truth. And, and we don't take that responsibility lightly. We don't take that accountability from God lightly. So we long to consistently teach God's word and to then give you direction and counsel for your life that is faithful to the scriptures. Uh, because we all have hearts that are bent toward sin and away from God. We saw that last week in the book of Romans in chapter 3 and chapter 5. And we need constant instruction from God's word. And so with that burden on my heart, we continue this series on the bridge to eternal life. So open to the book of Romans in chapter 1. If you will, Romans 1 is where we will begin this morning. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe, it says in verse 16. In other words, the Apostle Paul did not place his confidence in some clever ministry techniques or the latest trends. You know, should we become a seeker-sensitive church? Well, no, 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 we shouldn't do that anymore because now we should do like 40 days of purpose and now we should do this and now we should do that and we should just follow whatever trend the church marketers tell us to follow. And uh, Paul says, no, I'm actually confident in something that is infinitely more powerful than the latest gimmick that somebody's trying to make money off of. My confidence is in the gospel. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. My words are not powerful unto salvation, but God's word is powerful unto salvation. And Paul says, I'm not ashamed of that gospel. But we see in uh, the very opening verse of this book, as I've mentioned now more than once, that the gospel is God's gospel. Paul says that he is a servant of Christ, he is called to be an apostle, and he is set apart for the gospel of God. So the gospel is God's gospel. That means he gets to define it. We don't get to define it. It also means that the gospel begins with God. And we've been looking at at that in our illustration, uh, that we have God on one side of this chasm created by sin and man on the other side of the chasm. And so you can see that. And we spent the last couple weeks thinking about who is God and who are we. And we understand who we are only first by understanding who God is. And so we've talked about how the scriptures teach us that God is holy. That is that he is set apart. He is unique. He is distinct. He is separated from everything that is creaturely. He's the creator. We are the creatures. He's holy. He's sinless. He's also, because of that, the judge. 
He is the one final judge at the end of the age. But praise God, he's not only holy, he's not only a holy judge, but he's also a loving God who has reached out to us. He's reached down to us. Jesus Christ descended down from heaven to become one of us, to become man, to take upon himself our sin so that we can be saved. So God is holy. Our sins have separated us from God, but God is loving, that God has demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We understand that we are sinful, that, that our nature is bent away from God, and then we bend ourselves away from God. And we are helpless. We are unable to bridge this chasm caused by our sin. But we try. We try many things in order to try to get to God Perhaps we try to work our way to heaven. We try to buy our way to heaven. And yet scripture is very clear that we cannot buy eternal life. It is a gift from God, the free gift of his grace. And we cannot work our way to heaven. For none of our works will justify us before God. We also try to be good And yet Jesus says to us in the Gospels that there is no one good except God. None of us is good enough to bridge the gap. We also try through rituals of man-made religion, various uh, inventions of man that are not found in Scripture, ways to try to bridge this gap between us and God. God. And yet Titus 3.5 says, But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. And so it is the mercy of God then that solved our problem. And he sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bridge this gap. And so Jesus is the only way for us to get to God. We must go through the cross of Jesus Christ. We must go through the person and work of Jesus Christ. We must embrace him and what he has done for us. God's mercy came to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, as we've seen, salvation is not by our works. It's not works of righteousness, which we have done, but it is according to God's mercy provided us in Christ. But now, this morning, we want to think about the Lord Jesus Christ, the first piece of his his identity, so to speak. We're going to think about who he is that he is Lord. And then next week we'll think about how he is Savior. So one deals more with who he is, his identity in his very nature, and the other dealing more specifically with his work for us. So he is both Lord and Savior. He is both. He is referred to 
as the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior. For example, in Philippians 3 and verse 20, Paul says that we who are believers, we have a citizenship that is far beyond that which uh, can be found in this life and in this world. We have a citizenship that is in heaven, from which, Paul says, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is not Lord or Savior, but he is both. He is both Lord and Savior. And so this morning we're going to think about what it means that Jesus is Lord. We're going to look at four truths from the book of Romans. Number one, notice, Jesus is Lord means his authority is part of God's gospel. Notice in chapter 1. The gospel of God, verse 1, which he promised, so God promised this gospel, this good news of salvation, he promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, And so the central person of the gospel is the Lord Jesus Christ. This son of God descended from David. That is, his humanity came through the line of David. And this was in fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture, that there would come a king through the lineage of David who would become our Savior. And so he's a descendant of David according to the flesh, but he was already the eternal Son of God. He is one of the three members of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so the eternal Son of God took on himself the humility of humanity, our weakness, our human flesh. But then he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. So he was declared who he is through the resurrection. And so he suffered on that cross for our sin as a descendant of David according to the flesh. But through the resurrection, God declared him to be the Son of God. He already was the Son of God forever, but he declared him to the world that he is the Son of God. And then notice how verse 4 ends. Jesus Christ, our what? Lord. This is all part of the gospel that Paul is introducing us to here in the book of Romans. Through whom? So through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. And so it is the Lord Jesus Christ who is qualified to be our Savior. If Jesus was not Lord, he could not have saved us. He had to be God. He had to be Lord. 
He had to have the authority to conquer sin and death and the devil. When I was in Bible college in the 1980s, one of the books I was required to read had a really disturbing chapter in it. It was written by a well-known seminary professor and author. And the argument of the chapter was that Jesus didn't have to be Lord to be Savior. And I was fairly new in the Lord. I was only two years old as a believer, but God had been teaching me a lot through the scriptures, and there were just these red flags that went off in my mind. Well, how is that possible? That we can tell people that just accept Jesus as Savior, and that maybe at some point down the road, you will consecrate yourself and be rededicated and and find him as your Lord. How can we do that, biblically speaking? And it sent me on a journey to study the scriptures and to study the New Testament, how Jesus preached the gospel, how John the Baptist preached the gospel, and how the apostles preached the gospel and recorded it for us and came to the understanding that Jesus has to be Lord in order to be Savior. He is both. And that's why he's repeatedly called our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. This is such an important truth. So this teaching that began about 100 years ago was built upon the foundation of um, the Finneyism that had been running rampant through the church from Charles Finney and his his invention of revivalism. In other words, you can orchestrate a person's salvation. If you just create the right experience then you can emotionally move a person to get saved. And so this teaching built on top of that resulted in the last hundred years of, in many churches, a very watered-down, inadequate gospel message whereby Jesus in his identity as Lord has been diminished. And yet, what do we see here in these opening verses of Romans? That salvation, the gospel, comes to us through who? The Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ. It's part of the gospel. Secondly, notice that Jesus as Lord means he has authority to break the grip of sin and give eternal life. In Romans chapter 6, we looked at these verses last week through a different lens. Now we want to look at them through the lens of Jesus as Lord. Romans 6 is part of the book of Romans written to believers. Paul is teaching us here the right way for us to overcome sin. Because even though we have, have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and we have been forgiven and we are saved, we continue to struggle with remaining sin. In other words, indwelling sin continues to be an issue for us. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you know that to be the case. You continue to struggle against sin in your life. And so Paul is teaching us here in Romans 6 that the right way to deal with sin is to recognize who we are in Christ, that we have already died to sin and been raised 
to new life in Christ. That's our new identity. And so victory is ours through Jesus Christ. But notice verse 20, because he, he reminds us of what, was, what life was like before we met Jesus. For when you were slaves of sin, and those of us who've known the Lord Jesus for any length of time, we can go back in our past, we can go back in our memory, and we can, we can remember what it was like to live as a slave to sin, not having the freedom that we have now in Christ. When you were slaves of sin, Paul says, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you were a slave to sin, and you couldn't produce righteousness at least God's kind of righteousness. You could produce good works that maybe your, the religion you were raised in told you to produce, which is what I did. Or you could come to face to face, to face with the reality that you are not righteous enough and you must have a righteousness that is given to you from God. What, what fruit, he asks the question in verse 21, what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit came in your life from your slavery to sin? That's a good question, right? What kind of fruit? Good fruit? Rotten fruit. A lot of rotten fruit. And that's why the New Testament talks so much about fruit spiritual fruit and we should look at our lives and we should say okay so I came to know Jesus at at this time in my life so what fruit do I see growing in my life good fruit do I see growing in my life that is a product not of my own willpower but is a product of Jesus Christ changing me at the fundamental core of my being through the power of the Holy Spirit working through the gospel the fruit. For, for the end of those things, he says in verse 21, is death. But now, now, in other words, now that you have been set free by Jesus, now that you have been converted, you have experienced a conversion that the Holy Spirit has caused you to be born anew by the gospel, you now have the life of Christ in you. You have been set free, verse 22, from sin. From the slavery of sin. Doesn't mean we don't continue to struggle with sin because that comes out in chapter 7. But we have been set free from the slavery of sin and we have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. And so God, through the gospel, when he saves us, he starts a work of transformation from the inside out. And this then results in fruit of God's righteousness, which leads to sanctification. And sanctification gives us the assurance that we do know Christ, that he has begun a good work in us, and he will bring it to perfection in the end. As a result, then, we can know that we have eternal life. Well, that was new to me at the age of 19. 
God opened my eyes through the Gospel of John, and he drew me to himself, and I came to know Jesus. And then one of the very first verses I memorized was, was in 1 John 5, and it talks about how we can know we have eternal life. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. And these are written, John says, that you may know that you have eternal life. Not that you might think as a maybe, but that you may know. And up until that point of time in my life, if anyone would have asked me, Paul, are you going to go to heaven when you die? I would have said, maybe. Maybe. But after I came to know Jesus, the Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of my heart and my life, and my eyes were opened I could say beyond the shadow of a doubt, I have Christ and I know I have eternal life based on God's word. For the wages of sin is what? Death, verse 23, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our what? Lord. Lord. So, Freedom comes to us because Jesus is Lord. That, that he has the authority to break sin. And he can break our sin patterns. He can do this for us and then in the end give us eternal life. Is the eternal life that God gives to us something we earn by breaking our sins? No. It's a gift. But the evidence that we already possess the gift is that sin is being progressively broken in our lives because of the authority of Christ. Does that make sense? So important for us to understand these truths. Number three. Jesus is Lord means your response to his authority is part of what it means to be saved. Romans 10. Through the Holy Spirit's leading, these verses have already been read to you in the service today. But let's look at them again, and let's look at a wider context here. The conviction of the Apostle Paul in Romans 10 is that the gospel, because the gospel is the only power of God into salvation, because the message of Christ is the only way that any sinner like you and me can be saved, then the conviction should be we have got to get the gospel out. And we can't hold it in tightly we can't be content with a us for and no more mentality in our church. We have to be thinking, how can the gospel go out from among us? That's his burden. Because the message of salvation is given by God to all sinners, all kinds of sinners. As we saw two weeks ago, that the revelation in creation is enough to condemn us as sinners, but it's not enough to save us. We need the message of the cross. 
And that's why we as a church believe in worldwide missions. That's why we believe in getting the gospel to people groups who haven't heard the gospel. Paul writes in verse 8 of Romans 10, but what does it say? What does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be what? Saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So part of the core belief system of the gospel that saves us is that Jesus is Lord. And we confess that with our mouth, and we believe it in our heart. Why? Because we're believing in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Well, God doesn't raise just anybody from the dead. He raised up the Son of God, declared him to be the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if with our heart, heart in the Bible is our inner person, mind, emotion, and will, the, the control center of man, that's what the Bible means when it uses the word heart, with the very control center of who you are at the core of your being, mind, emotion, will, you embrace, you embrace this Jesus who is Savior and Lord, you will be saved. What a message. For the scripture says, verse 11, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. So it doesn't matter how you were raised. It doesn't matter what ethnicity you were born into. It doesn't matter your upbringing. It doesn't matter the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be what? Saved. And on the name of what? The Lord. See, Jesus has the right to be our Lord, first because he created us, Colossians 1 says that he is the creator. And so every person, whether they know it or not, whether they recognize it or not, has the authority of Jesus over their life. The same Lord is Lord of all. So every believer who has come to genuine faith in Jesus has come to him, not merely as Savior, but also as Lord, because that's who he is. It's, it's part of his identity. You can't cut Jesus in half and say, I only want half of him. I only want the half that brings me comfort that someday when I die, I've got this ticket in my back pocket that I'll submit at the door and it'll let me get admitted. When you come to Jesus, you get the whole Jesus. 
you get who he is by his very nature. And what a beautiful promise, verse 13, that when we call on the name of this Lord, we are what? Saved. So Jesus as Lord means your response to his authority is part of what it means to be saved. Now, having said that, I am not saying that when we get saved, we must understand all of the ways that God intends to change us as we functionally live under the Lordship of Christ. Oh, my word, if God would have done that to any of us, within the first year that we got saved, we would have just been crushed under the weight. But God is so patient and loving and gracious. He begins a good work in us, Philippians 1.6, and then he continues to do that work and he'll bring it to completion when? In the day of Christ Jesus. Okay? So we're not talking about looking at our lives and being able to see perfection, no. But we should be able to see progression. If you've been saved two years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, you ought to be able to see a progression of growth in your life that gives evidence that you have been changed at the fundamental core of your being, who you are, your heart. But if, you, if you've been saved for 30 years, 40 years, and you're still as stubborn as you were before, you should be evaluating yourself. You should be looking into the mirror of the Word of God and saying, what is wrong inside of me that I am not changing and becoming a totally different person from the inside out? Now, the level of fruitfulness among us as believers is going to, is going to vary. Jesus even taught that in his uh, parables. But there has to be some good fruit. But if all you see is the same rotten fruit you had in your life before you came to Jesus... You, you need to ask yourself some really important questions. Like, what is your understanding of Christ? Who is he? What does he fundamentally want to do with you and for you? Because perhaps you just accepted Jesus as your Savior, put that in your back pocket, and there's really been no fundamental change because you didn't realize who he who he fully is that he's actually lord and he has a rightful claim on who you are he has a rightful claim on changing your heart and I'm so thankful. I mean, I see so many areas in my life where I still am not what God wants me to be and corruption in my heart that I hate. But praise God, I can look back on almost 40 years now and I can say, thank you, Lord. And though I'm not everything that I ought to be, I'm not what I used to be. 
and praise God for that. Amen? Amen. All right, then there's a fourth truth that we should look at this morning, and that is in chapter 14. Jesus as Lord means yielding to his authority is the reason he died and rose again for you. Look at Romans 14. I mean, how rare is it for us, even as evangelical believers, to hear messages like this that tell us that what the Bible tells us, and that is that one of the reasons that Jesus died and rose again was to change us from the inside out. Romans 14, look at verse 7. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. Now, the context here is Paul's talking about varying convictions of believers. And that is that even as, even as believers in Christ, we're going to have uh, varying convictions on certain things uh, as far as how we live out the Christian life, and he gives some examples as far as like what you eat and and how you celebrate certain days and so on and so forth. But fundamentally, he says, it's the same for each of us as believers, and that is that we don't belong to ourselves anymore. We belong to Christ. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For, verse 8, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord, so then, whether we live or whether we die, we are, what? The Lord's. That's the authority of Jesus Christ. The, the functional authority that he has over our lives. So, in other words, he's saying to these believers who have differing opinions on, on what they should eat and what days they should celebrate and how they should celebrate it, he says, at the very baseline, you must understand this, that you are not your own and you are not your own functional authority. You now, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you now come under his authority. He is Lord. And this is true of whether we are alive or whether we are dying or dead, verse 8. But then verse 9, wow, what a verse that we don't think about very often. For... That's a purpose word. Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you the reason. I just told you what I did. For to this end, in other words, goal, this was the goal of Christ. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. Why? That he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. What does that mean? It means that Jesus died and rose again for us, not merely to give us a get-out-of-hell-free card that one day we redeem when we go to heaven. 
He died and rose again so that he might be our functional Lord. He is Lord, okay? Nobody makes Jesus Lord. He is Lord. But we are called to submit to his lordship because it's his right. Not only did he create us, but he died for us. And he rose again for us to buy us back, to purchase us out of the slave market of sin, and to say to us, come to me and I will give you new life. I will wash all of your sins away because I already paid for them. And I'll give you new life that you can freely live under my authority. Wow. What a gift. This is the abundant life that Jesus talks about in John 10.10. Not just the eternal life that we think of in the future, but Jesus says eternal life is that we know God And he says, I've also come that you might have life and you might have it more abundantly. That's what this is. We live the abundant Christian life under the functional authority of Jesus as Lord. This is who he is. 2 Peter 1, believers are told to grow in godliness. We're, we're told to exert great effort and discipline to become like Christ. But then Peter goes on to say in verse 11 that this growth isn't what earns us salvation. This growth is what proves we already possess it. He goes on in verse 11 to say, for in this way... As, as your assurance of salvation is coming to you, as you see the Holy Spirit at work in your life, in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of, here it is again, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Again, what, a, what an amazing promise from God. That we don't have to go through this life wondering. When we die, will it be a maybe? Will it be a one side of the scale, good works, one side of the scale, evil works? And we, we really, really hope that we've done at least one more good work than we've done evil And yet God's word says that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all in equal need of this redemption, this glorious salvation from God. And we can know we have it by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Savior, and then seeing him continue to work in our life gradually, slowly, changing us from who we used to be to who he wants us to be. And that assurance then, Peter says, richly provides our entrance into 
the eternal kingdom. Wow. What a gift. And again, to review where we've been the last two weeks, this comes to us by faith, not by works. It comes to us by faith. What is faith? Faith is a two-sided coin. Repent, that is turn away from our sin to Christ. And we trust, we believe, we trust that what God's word says about our sinful condition and God's glorious grace and his abundant love is true. And we embrace that by faith. And we then move from eternal death to eternal life. This is who Jesus is. And this is who you and I must embrace. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you know him? And are you clinging to him with everything in you, with your heart, your mind, your emotions, your will? And evidence of that is that you see that you are gradually, progressively living under his functional lordship and seeing the fruit of of the Holy Spirit developing and growing in your life. God, we thank you. Oh, what good news this is. Wow. What a message that you would reach down from the glories of heaven to take the initiative to save us from our sin. You're not sitting in heaven waiting for man to get religious enough and to build and climb some kind of stairway to heaven. But your Son, the eternal Son of God, descended a ladder from heaven to take on human flesh that he may go to the cross and be the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And then you rose him from the grave to to declare to everyone who he really is. He is the Son of God. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, the only one who can save us. God, work in our hearts. Bring us to deeper understanding and embracing by faith these glorious truths. In the name of Christ, we pray.